Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. I'm John Boccasino, Senior Internal Communications Specialist at Syracuse University. Syracuse was my connection to great college football. Syracuse was national champions in 1959. There was only one place I wanted to go. And as a matter of fact, Larry Zonka, who was my teammate, Larry said to me one time, why did you go to Syracuse? He said, you were a good running back in your own right, but you had Floyd and you had all these, you know, these players were there. You weren't going to be. And I said, because that's the only place I ever wanted to go was Syracuse because I had memories of that all, all the time when I was a youngster. And when, when the scholarship offer came, I was like, wow, it's truly a miracle. Our guest today on the Cuse Conversations podcast, it's Tom Coughlin, the two-time Super Bowl winning head coach of the New York Giants, who is also a successful front office executive. Tom has a new book out called A Giant Win, describing how in Super Bowl 42, his Giants shocked the football world by knocking off Tom Brady and the previously undefeated New England Patriots. It was one of the greatest Super Bowls ever played. Tom is also a graduate of Syracuse University with both his bachelor's and master's degrees. He was a three-year letter winner on the football team. Tom, thank you for making the time to join us on the podcast. How are you holding up these days? Doing well, thank you. Doing well. It's it's really a pleasure to have you on, you know, from your connections with Syracuse under coach Ben Schwartzwelder. Of course, you also won the two Super Bowls. Let's start with the book. Why okay. was now a good time for you to get out this remarkable story? Well, you know, it was it was brought to my attention. It's 15 years. And I said, well, you can't be 15 years. You know, one of those deals. And it, and it has been 15 years. But, you know, when you think about where our country has been in the last few years, COVID, inflation, recession, this book is a story of hope and inspiration. That's exactly what it is. Because when most of us as as Americans, okay, at one time or another have been knocked on our rear end, okay? And you got to get up off the floor. You you don't have a choice, you know? Uh, if your heart is in the right place, you're going to fight back from whatever, you know? There's a theme that goes on throughout my book, which is, you know, go ahead, tell me I can't do something. It was always a great motivator for me, okay? But this book, you have to understand, in the 06 season, once we finished, we were 8-8, eight and eight, got beaten in the playoffs right away. And the media wanted me out. They were trying to fire me, okay? The media was legitimately going after me and trying to create enough attention and create enough interest in what they were doing that they would eventually push ownership to the point where ownership would make a decision to get rid of me. So fighting through that, okay, and then making changes in how I would approach my team and how I would approach the media and those types of things, and then I hired a new defensive coordinator named Steve Spagnolo, and we started the 07 season 0 and 2. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can't make it up. And, and we gave up 80 points on defense, too. But we held it together. And when we went to Washington for our, you know, for our third game, I'm sure the media, I don't pay a lot of attention to the media, but the media was saying, oh, oh well, if Coughlin loses this game, I'm sure he's gone. You know, he's gone. We go to, to Washington, and at halftime, we're behind. We take the lead in the fourth quarter. Washington drives the ball down. It's third and 13 from our minus 21-yard line. They throw a ball down to the one. There's about one minute and one second left to go in the game. 
And we institute a goal line stand, which not only prevents them from scoring, but gives us the impetus. Now we go on and win six straight games after that. So in other words, it's a team that was down. It's a coach that was going to get fired. You know, it was the, the whole thing you can imagine in a, in a negative light. Okay. And then it turned around. Not that it was ever going to be easy because we went, we went four and four through the second half of the season. And we had opportunities against Washington and opportunities against Minnesota to have what I thought we should have had, which is what 12 and four season. We ended up 10 and six. But if you'll remember the impetus, the, where it all was finalized and put together, we played on week 17, the New England Patriots, who were 15 and 0, and they were playing for a 16 and 0 season. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it was at home. It was in the old Giant Stadium. Uh, we had the whole world watching. It was NFL films. It was a 50-degree evening, one of those deals. And because I had much to do when after we beat Buffalo to get in the playoffs, there was much to do about it. You're going to play your players. You're going to rest your players. And my position was this. I'm the head coach of the New York Giants, flagship team in the National Football League, the red, white, and blue. There's no way I am going, and a historian, and there's no way I'm going to allow history to look back and say that the New York Giants did not play a undefeated team, a team that was trying to go through an undefeated season. Was not, the New York Giants were not going to put their best foot forward. So we, I told our players on Monday, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to play to win. Everybody's playing. The players were bought it. We're all in. And it was a heck of a football game. They beat us 38-35, but we knew coming off the field that we could play with them. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad. I was going to segue to the fact that they were undefeated. It was a thrilling back and forth 38-35 game. You guys put a blueprint on paper and on tape for how to beat Tom Brady. You'd be physical. You get your defensive line to get up the middle, get pressure on him and make him uncomfortable. How did you see that momentum? I know you had a couple games to play. You had the wild card round. You had the divisional, the NFC championship game, and then you get the Super Bowl. But how did that momentum from that regular season loss carry over and fuel your guys to that championship? Well, our guys knew coming off the field and you could hear the Patriot players talking about it. You know, you know, that that was a that was a tough football game. <laughs> They're a good football team, all of that stuff, you know. So our guys coming off. We didn't win. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. You know, you're, you're in the business to win, okay? It's not to, not to do well and not win, blah, blah, blah. No, you're in the business to win. And so coming off, we knew, you know, they, they had beaten us. They hit one of those, you know, Brady to Mosses at the end of the game, which was going on all year long. I mean, this, what you have to understand, this Patriot team of 07 and 08 in the playoffs, was the greatest offensive machine in the history of the National Football League. And the Brady to Moss combination was incredible. Okay. Yeah. And so the, that was the setting. But the way we played, and, you know, we, it, it was a much different game than the Super Bowl. I mean, the, this game was 38 35, so a complete defensive game in the Super Bowl. But we felt we could play with them. You mentioned being a football historian and obviously the standard bearer for upsets 
before that was Super Bowl three with the Baltimore Colts and the New York Jets and Joe Namath. And we guarantee we're going to win. And they shocked the world. Do you, you feel your game was a bigger upset than that, right? Oh, it was the great. Our game was the greatest upset in the history of football uh, and of the Super Bowls for sure. Because look at what it was. The Patriots were 18 and 0. Okay. All the attention was on them. You know, very little was paid to the Giants. You know, and if you just looked at our, when we arrived in, in, in Arizona, the Patriots were in downtown Phoenix. Okay. We were, in, we were out in the desert somewhere in a hotel, you know, <laughs> so it was almost as if that was a setup as well. You know, the Patriots are the, the whole world is looking at the Patriots, the greatest team of all time, Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time, Bill Belichick, the greatest head coach or, or defensive uh uh, genius of all time, certainly all of that. Okay. And, and they earned it rightfully so. Okay. Sure. But the game was totally different and we felt like we could play with them. Now going through the playoffs had given us even greater reinforcement because we went to Tampa and won. I lost a, a couple of guys. Starters couldn't play because I played starters against new England in week 17 Went to Dallas. Dallas had beaten us twice during the regular season. They were 14 and two. Jerry Jones was passing out tickets to the NFC championship game <laughs> the night before we played. Okay. And we beat them with a big drive just before the half to tie the score at 10 10. That took a little wind out of their sail. <laughs> then we went to Green Bay at minus 24 degrees. Okay. <laughs> played against the Brett Favre. You know, Green Bay Packer team, it was an outstanding football team. But game goes into overtime. You know, Lawrence Tynes kicks a 47-yard field goal, could have been 55. Ball's hard as a rock. You know, Plexico and, uh, and, and, and Eli put on a great passing performance under those conditions. was just incredible. We had two chances to win that game late in the, in the, in the, you know, in the fourth quarter. We missed a field goal. We had a bad snap on another field goal. But when we got into overtime, the second play of overtime, we uh, picked off a, a pass. We thought we set up our team. We didn't gain much yardage. It was a long field goal. Lawrence Times runs on the field. I say field goal. They go out, we kick field goal. We're in, on to the Super Bowl. So we had a buildup of uh, different circumstances, different situations, but we had won. It all ties into those themes of overcoming adversity, fighting back when you get knocked on your rear end. And, and it, it's commendable because Tom, I felt like you guys, if you weren't a Patriots fan, there was only one answer for who, and I'm a Buffalo bills fan. I've had season tickets. I was actually there at that 2007 game when really? you guys clinched your playoff spot. Um, we saw Tom Brady throw four touchdown passes to Randy Moss on a Sunday night win. I think they won 55 to 10 uh, over Buffalo. So we saw up close and personal, the powerhouse machine, Yes. Everybody was rooting for your team, though. You were America's underdog that week. How much did your team cherish and relish the fact that the whole country was basically rooting for you to pull the upset? Well, I think that's exactly the point, okay? We knew we were the underdog by, by, by a mile, you know, in that <laughs> type of situation. But without going nuts, you know, we use that, obviously, as everybody does. Anytime you have that kind of of motivation, people telling you, you can't win. Okay, go ahead. Tell me I can't do something, you know, that <laughs> type of thing. 
And so that was, and we, and listen, the night before the game, people want to know how, how, how I was at peace with where we were because we had prepared so well. You know, I didn't know if we were going to win. I knew we would play well because we had prepared well and we were in a really good spot mentally and our players were in a good spot. And I knew that we were ready to go. And, you know, we had rehearsed the big stage and talked about, you know, how the, the pregame is so much longer than any other time and all of the things that, that players needed information about we had covered. You know, we're going to go out and we're going to sit down and we're going to preserve our energy. We're not going to waste a lot of energy, you know, nervous energy in that long time on the field prior to the kickoff. So we had gone over all of that stuff and our guys were ready to play. And as you said, the formula was, for example, very simple when you break it down. You can't let Tom Brady have his spot. You can't let him sit there and throw the ball. You've got to knock the quarterback down. You got to move him off his spot. And in the game, we sacked him five times. We hit him, knocked him down 17 times. There was a lot of that in the game, all legitimate. And Brady proved what a tough son of a gun he is because we drilled him. Even in that last segment with 35 seconds left, we got a great hit on him. And still he came back and made two rocket throws down the sideline. But yes, overcoming adversity and being told you can't do something, and against all odds, those are all motivational factors. I think if you put those adjectives together and put them into an NFL play, you might get Eli Manning escaping the grasp of the pass rush and finding David Tyree for the helmet catch. That was such an improbable, (laughs) from a fan standpoint, watching that play manifest itself was the ultimate of not giving up and finding a way to make it happen. What were your recollections of what we now call the helmet catch, possibly the greatest play in Super Bowl history. What did you see on that play on the sidelines? Well, first of all, it's David Tyree, a Syracuse guy, you know, who is the, the recipient. And, and it is the greatest catch of all time in the Super Bowl. There's no question in my mind. And that's been backed up by many, many people. But uh, on that particular play, it's third and five. You know, we're out near midfield. I've actually got the, 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 the play right in front of me. Mike Terry, the, the referee, is standing right off to my left. And when the ball is snapped, there's penetration right away, right away. And Eli's surrounded by three Patriot defenders who have a hold of him. They've got his shirt. They've got pieces of him. And I'm looking at Mike Carey thinking, Mike, don't stop the play. Let the play go. Let it go. And somehow Eli wiggles out. And if you understand, David Tyree's going to the post, but he's coming back as a part of the scramble drill. When the quarterback is in trouble, he's coming back to the quarterback. And Eli breaks free, and you see him set himself like he's going to throw a javelin and down the middle of the field. And my next thought is, oh, boy, Eli, do not overthrow the ball in the middle of the field because it'll be surely picked off. Rodney Harrison is the safety at that time. Rodney Harrison is an outstanding football player who's probably 15 to 20 pounds heavier than David Tyree. David Tyree goes up. He's got two hands catching the ball. And I dismiss anybody that wants to say it's a lucky catch. It's a great catch. He's got two hands on the ball. Rodney Harrison takes one of his arms away. He pins the ball to his helmet 
And as he's going down, Rodney Harrison's fighting him. He goes across the back of, of David's knees. And David is literally like this on the ground. And anybody that plays in the backyard knows somebody goes to your knees, you're going to let the ball go. It just, it's just a natural instinctive thing. David secures the ball, even when he's on his back on top of Harrison and Harrison's across the back of his knees. A great, courageous play, okay? But it's the play that, you know, gives us the, 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 the surge from midfield down into deep into Patriot territory. Now, it's, the game's not over. <laughs> There's a lot of work to be done against not only were the Patriots a great offensive team, they were ranked fourth in the NFL in a lot of the most uh, meaning categories, of, you know, yards against, points against, that kind of thing, with their defensive team, which was loaded with talent, which was loaded with talent. You're not going to get to the position the Patriots were in at 18-0 and 0 without a well-rounded, talented football team. All this drama, all this emotion, and, and the final, you know, Tom Brady kept the Patriots in until the very last second, but the final whistle goes off and you guys have pulled off this monumental upset. How vindicated did you feel? I know it's a team game, but you had to feel a little vindicated knowing how the media and owners, people were trying to force you out. And here you were hoisting the dang Lombardi trophy. How vindicated did you feel? Well, I'll just give you one, one primary example of that. Four years later, when we opened the season in 2011, I, I mentioned to the press, would you please get started telling the world that, that I should be fired? Because when, you, <laughs> when you do that, we win the Super Bowl. So that's exactly how I felt about that. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that other stuff. I really sure. don't. I mean, people have a job to do, you know, and I've been through that whole thing. We brought in each member of the media uh, and, you know, went one-on-one -on -one with them. Uh, so that uh, at that point in time, back again now to 07, you know, they, we took the gloves off and I told them what I didn't like about them. They told me what they didn't like about me. And my decision was this at that time, I, I came to understand better that these were blue collar people trying to make a living and that I'm a blue collar guy and I could help them. I could help them in some way do their job. I wasn't going to tell them anything that they, that would hurt us, but I could be, I could be more respectful. I could be uh, more accepting of their questions, even when they were dumb questions, you know, more accepting of that. And, and so I learned from that process as well. So at the time the gun went off, the thing that I was going to mention to you, and people don't remember this, but when the fourth down play was over and we still had to go on the field, you know, in the victory formation to kneel down to get the game in. Bill Belichick came across the field to me, came right over. Yeah. And I went on the field four or five yards and, you know, we embraced, we hugged and uh, he was extremely gracious. Okay. For, for a person in that position, he was, he was tremendous. He was very gracious. And then he turned and went across the field, even before we knelt down, he, he took some criticism for that. But when the gun went off, you know, the excitement and, and, the realization of what had just been accomplished was a, an incredible feeling. And it was shared by everybody on the sideline. I mean, our, our sideline went, went, went crazy and, you know, the confetti comes down and all of that business, <laughs> my family, you know, getting out of the stands and coming, you know, to where we were, that was all a big part of it. 
and it's shared. The message that I had given our team the night before was I wanted, I wanted us to win the Super Bowl because I wanted each one of these players to understand what it meant to be world champions. You know, certainly, you know, the, the journey is where you uh, encounter all the joy and all the difficulties and all the things you overcome. But when you're on top of the mountain, you're the best. You're the best in your profession. And all those who participated in helping you get there, share in that. Your family, your mother, your father, your wife, your children, your siblings, all of those people embrace the whole thing. And they're all champions. And it's a much better feeling to share it with those who got you there, your high school coach, your college, anybody that had anything to do with your being in that position becomes a champion as well. And that's what I wanted them to understand. And I could see in their eyes, they were starting to enjoy that part of it. I tell you, everybody, I mean, Syracuse University alumni celebrated uh, people in your hometown of Waterloo. There's a beautiful sign, you know, the birthplace of Tom Coughlin, two-time Super Bowl champion when you drive into Waterloo. This, this win meant a lot for a lot of people. I want to go back a little bit, though, to your connections to Syracuse. You sure. earned your bachelor's degree and your master's from Syracuse. What was it about Syracuse that appealed to you that made you want to go study, uh, earn two degrees, and be a three-year letter winner on the football team? I was born and raised in Waterloo, New York, as you mentioned, which is literally halfway uh, between Rochester and Syracuse, okay? So my – actually, Section 5 is, is towards Rochester is where we, you know, played our sectional tournaments and basketball and what have you. So I was in between there. I remember our first television as a youngster was a black and white TV. And my, the first thing I ever saw on television was a college football game on a Saturday afternoon. But on Thursday nights, it was the Ben Schwartzwalder show. And in, in those days, it was a review of the previous game. It was Coach Schwartzwalder. It was the highlights. You know how all that went. So from that time, I was interested in Syracuse football. Jim Brown. You know, watching Jim Brown play and then watching Ernie Davis, you know, and Ernie Davis wins the Heisman Trophy. OK, and then even as far as Floyd, Floyd was one year ahead of me, Floyd Little. So I, I, I watched and knew about Floyd when I was a senior, even in high school. So those were the thoughts that I had. And it was much more colloquial. I mean, you know, it, the world was much smaller and Syracuse was my connection to great college football. Syracuse was national champions in 1959. So to be honest, there was only one place I wanted to go. And as a matter of fact, Larry Zonka, who was my teammate, Larry said to me one time, why did you go to Syracuse? He said, you were a good running back in your own right, but you had Floyd and you had all these, you know, these players were there. You weren't going to be. And I said, because that's the only place I ever wanted to go was Syracuse because I had memories of that all, all the time when I was a youngster. And when, when the scholarship offer came, I was like, wow, it's truly a miracle. You know, I, can, I remember coming back from my, from my campus visit and walking through, you know, the library yard right next to where our house was and, and just thinking how, you know, how amazing it was and thanking the good Lord, quite frankly, for the opportunity that had come my way, something that I, you know, passionately sought, but I was, it was, it was too surreal for me to even talk about it. Now, in truth, when I was a freshman in high school, 
a good friend of mine, John Hilkert, and his dad uh, took me to this a Syracuse pit game. And I saw Mike Ditka and I saw, you know, I saw uh, Ernie Davis. And when we came back home, my buddy John Hilkert nicknamed me Ernie. So all through high school, <laughs> my nickname was Ernie, was Ernie. I, that's a that's great. I, I love the fact that the very first thing you watch on television is a Syracuse football game. And, you know, you come to campus and I, I want to get your thoughts on something. Obviously, um, we lost Floyd Little way too yeah, early. Terrible, we lost Ernie terrible. Davis way terrible. too early. And, and Jim Brown is obviously still still kicking and still doing uh, great work. But they all wore the number 44. And yeah. I heard you say during an interview um, with Eli Manning that 44 is the most magical number in sports it's a softball question but why why do you feel that well it's it's the magical number for syracuse university and that's why eli in his show which was you know going to different places and featuring uh why he was there when we talk about syracuse the number 44 is there and you know we kidded about things and you know eli (laughs) would say can i could i have worn 44 no you couldn't, you couldn't wear 44. <laughs> well, could I have worn 49? No, Eli, you would not have gotten 49 either. We were, you know, we were actually kidding. But, but Syracuse football has that great tradition. And if you wear that number at Syracuse, you are pretty special, you know. And it's been retired and unretired. And obviously, it's a great recruiting tool, and it has to be used that way. And uh, But that's to what... Uh, you always thought about and referred to because here's Jim Brown, here's Ernie, here's Floyd. And no matter where you stop to think, you know, Floyd Little is given credit for saving professional football in Denver. I mean, that's how good he was. Okay. Ernie Davis was the first, you know, African-American to win the Heisman Trophy. I mean, and he was a great football player, Elmire, New York. I knew his high school coach. I, you know, I recruited in and out of there when I was a, an assistant coach with Syracuse. And then Jim Brown bought the, brought the attention of everyone to number 44. And then Jim Brown goes on. You know, people don't even remember. Jim Brown played pro football for nine years, okay? He won the rushing title eight out of nine years. <laughs> I mean, it's unheard of. He was, you know, he was a guy that played. Even when he was hurt, he played, you know? And Jim Brown's Syracuse legacy is incredible. Still thought to be the greatest lacrosse player ever to play. He made the varsity basketball team. He ran, he, he could play, he ran track. Jim Brown did everything at Syracuse, you know, and, and was great at it. Let us never forget the, leg, the legacy and the legend of, of Jim Brown and of all the great football players. And you, of course, were a part of that great tradition. When and people find out, you know, you yeah. can't, you can't. You know, you people don't understand the, the quality of the coach that Ben Schwartzwalder was and where he was coming from. You know, if you brought up today how we practiced, <laughs> we practiced in, in training camp, all right? Three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, and we practiced till he got tired. <laughs> always, <laughs> always in full pads, always full pads. <laughs> we would come out of Manly Fieldhouse, walk across that Manly Field, and if you remember, the ropes were hung on the other side of, of, of Manly Field. We climbed the ropes full pads, helmets, everything. And here's how Floyd went up the ropes. One hand here, one hand there. Floyd <laughs> Little, fully padded, fully dressed. 
you know, the rest of us are hooking our legs around and pulling. <laughs> Floyd went up like this. Amazing. When people find out um, that you are a Syracuse alumnus, what do you want them to know? Like how proud that makes you feel and what it means to you to be an alum of Syracuse? <laughs> well, the fact that I grew up in Waterloo, New York, the fact I went to Syracuse, and you know what? My my playing days, I loved them, okay? Hmm. Now, I wasn't the featured player. I, I, I tell everybody, you know, Floyd always brought up, you know, the greatest college backfield in the history of college football. Zonka at fullback, Floyd at tailback, and me at wingback. And I was there, whoa, 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 whoa. They needed 11 guys, so that's why I think, <laughs> you know, that, that's how I got on the field. Because uh, there's no way, and, and those two are in the Hall of Fame. They're, they're great, great football players, okay? And they, they were from day one, you know, and, but, the, but the legacy of experiences that we had as players, I can't tell you what, what it meant. I mean, we go as freshmen, right? Freshmen in those days came in a few days early because, uh, I mean, later than the varsity because freshmen weren't eligible. We had our own schedule and everything like that. But within a week, we went to Archbold Stadium, and the varsity's at the other end of the field warming up, and there's, what, 75 or 80 of them. We come in with our scrawny freshman 25. It was the Christians to the Lions. That's how, that's how it started. You know? and that was the first scrimmage. The first play of the first scrimmage that I ever participated in at Syracuse University as a freshman against the varsity, I was the left corner on defense, okay, was a toss to Floyd with Jim Nance at fullback, Gary Bugenhagen pulling in front of the toss, All-American. I had Floyd Little running the ball, Jim Nance coming at me, Gary Bugenhagen pulling at me. I mean, that was the first play of my career. And it's lucky. I'm lucky there was even more career after that. So, <laughs> but I, I mean, I loved it as a player. Now I came back as a coach. It wasn't quite the same experience. I will admit to that. You know, although I was proud to be a Syracusean, it was tough. It was, it was a tough time. Syracuse making a decision between whether they were going to stay in the lofty division one experience we had all come to love or what they were going to do. And then, you know, it got better even after that. Um, Coach Mack and his group came through. So, but I loved my experience and I wouldn't trade it for anything. When did you realize you wanted to become a coach? I know that you obviously started about, off at Syracuse. About my sophomore year in high school. I had great coaching in high school. My, my basketball and baseball coach was a coach named Bill Carey. He was, he was a great tough Irish, you know, you know, and my football coach was a man by the name of Mike Ornato. So in my town, I had great coaching. And I always observed how the rest of the town respected our coaches. And that made a huge impact on me. Well, it, it's really, we're so happy that you stuck with the, the coaching route. Uh, you reached great heights with the Giants and the Jaguars. Before I let you go, I do want to talk about, and you're wearing the logo on your shirt now. Um, you founded the Tom Coughlin J Fund Foundation, which helps families tackle childhood cancer. It's an incredible effort. Can you give our audience some background into what inspired you sure. and your late wife to form this foundation? I was the head coach at Boston College. I was an assistant coach with the New York Giants in 90, and we won Super Bowl 25. Okay, I was the wide receiver coach for Bill Parcells and the New York Giants. Boston College came 
looking for a head coach. Initially, I was not interested because we were 10 and 0 with the Giants. I was not going to be a disruption. Later on, Parcell said, don't worry about it. If, if you're interested in the job, go ahead and pursue it. So after about 13 games, they came back, Boston College came back, and I accepted the job as the head coach of Boston College. Now, I had been at Boston College as an assistant coach under Jack McNell, and I coached Doug Flutie, okay? So I went to Boston College, 1991. My strong safety was a young man by the name of Jay McGillis, redheaded Irish kid, you know, overachiever, you know, very tough, very physical, very smart, great teammate, you know, uh, never in trouble. You know, I had, I had this, you know, eight, a six o'clock run for anybody that missed class at Boston College. Never did Jay McGillis miss anything, okay? Great citizen, loved by all, okay? Teachers, professors, played 10 games, came home from Syracuse, as a matter of fact. Trainers came to me and said, Jay will probably not play this week. I said, why? So, well, he has glands are swollen and he's all, well, I said, let's get the doctors in here. Let's get him, get him right. Let him play again. Well, through the testing, you know, it wasn't mumps or sore throats or whatever. It was leukemia. And it was a ravaging form of leukemia. And this was November of 91. By July of 92, Jay was gone. He was gone. He died. But what we watched his family go through, Judy and I, okay, very close to the McGillis family. Mom and dad stopped working. Siblings leave college, come home to the bedside of the sick child. What we saw, nobody working, bills mounting up, you know, that type of thing. In the spring of that year, one of my linebackers, Mike Panos, came to me and said, Coach, we got to do something to help the McGillis's. I said, what do you mean? Well, dad's not working. Mom's not working. Bills are piling up. How, how can we help? So we put together an idea of what we called a lift-a-thon. The players went out in the community. In those days, we used to do a max lift in the spring. So they maxed out in squat, bench, and power clean. They went into the community. They got pledges financially for what they would lift. We came back, and at the halftime of the spring game, we presented the McGillis family with a check for $50,000. So in my mind was what we had done to help a family who had a child with cancer. So Judy and I thought that if we ever give a chance, have a chance to give back, it will be in the name and the spirit of Jay McGillis, and we will honor and help families who have a child with cancer. So when I became the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars and started that whole uh, franchise, okay, the, the year of our first team was 95. In the spring of 96, we had our first event to raise money. It was a golf tournament for the J Fund Foundation, okay? The Tom Coughlin J Fund Foundation. And that was the first. This spring will be our 28th, our 28th. Last October was our 17th Champions for Children event in Manhattan. So we help families who have a child with cancer in Jacksonville and in New York, New Jersey, okay? And we will continue to serve this lofty goal 
Because when a family hears those terrible words, your child has cancer, everything else is put aside and they go to the bedside of the sick child and the, and the bills, you know, build up. And what would our number one goal, we're, we're practical in nature. We keep people in their homes. We pay for their mortgage. We pay for their rent. We pay, pay for their automobile expenses. We pay for food. We pay for electric bills. We pay for, uh, God forbid, fam, uh, funerals. We pay for everything we can to help keep a family stable so that the child feels that the parents have the full intention of helping him or her get better. It's a remarkable, driven mission. It's inspiring to hear. And if our listeners want to get involved, it's tcjayfund.org. We'll link to that on the podcast, but it's tcjayfund.org. And if you're interested in finding a great inspirational story, I highly recommend A Giant Win, the new book by Tom Coughlin, the two-time Super Bowl winning head coach, It's been a privilege and an honor to have you on the podcast. We wish you nothing but the best and thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Appreciate you listening to our story and it's nice to talk about Syracuse. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.